0: Welcome to the Arts and Sciences Matters podcast, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. This is your host, Anna Varela. Our goal is to bring you insights from researchers working on a broad range of social, cultural, and scientific challenges. Our guest today is astrophysicist Misty Bentz. Today we're talking about her research into supermassive black holes. Dr. Benz is leading one of the first teams selected to conduct research using the Webb Space Telescope, which is scheduled to launch in early 2021. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Benz. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a few basic questions. Can you help our listeners understand what what is a black hole? Sure. A black hole is the most dense, most compact
1: object that we know about in nature. So imagine you take a clump of material, any sort of material that you want, and you squeeze it down, and you keep squeezing it down, and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until it basically becomes infinitely small, and that makes it infinitely dense as well. And that's basically what a black hole is. It's sort of the most full point of space you can possibly have. Um, And I always tell everyone I think the name black hole is really misleading because we think of a hole in the garden outside as a place where there is a deficit of material. But a black hole is a place where you've squeezed all the material together as dense as you can get it. And so it's uh, infinitely full instead of empty. Interesting. So then what is a supermassive black hole? Right. So we classify black holes in a couple different ways um, based on how much material has been squeezed down into them. So a supermassive black hole has a mass that is something like a million to maybe 10 billion times the mass of our sun, a star. So if you took a million of the sun and squeezed them down into an infinitely small space, that would be a supermassive black hole. Um, And that's opposed to a stellar mass black hole which is when you take the mass of just one large star, for example, and squeeze that down into an infinitely small point source. Um, and then there we have some other potential black holes that may be out there that we are not sure we've found yet. So intermediate-mass black holes are exactly what they sound like. They have a mass that's intermediate between that of a star and that of a supermassive black hole.
0: Okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Webb Space Telescope and your research project? I understand you were one of the lucky 13 to be chosen out of more than 100 submissions to use this new observatory that'll be orbiting around the Earth. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that's going to
1: work? Sure. Yeah. So the Webb Telescope is NASA's upcoming flagship mission. So it's kind of thought of as being the the next Hubble Space Telescope. Mm -hmm. In actuality, it will have different capabilities than the Hubble Space Telescope has. So Hubble can see visible light, it can see a little bit of infrared light, which we tend to think of as heat, Mm -hmm. and a little bit of ultraviolet light as well. The Webb telescope is optimized for infrared light and just a little bit of visible light. So it will be able to see things that Hubble can't see. It's also going to be larger than Hubble, so that means it can see things that are fainter or further away from us. Um, and it's going to have a very different place in space than the Hubble Space Telescope does. So Hubble goes around the Earth once every two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be positioned about a million miles away from Earth, so that's about five times farther away than the moon. Oh. And it's going to follow along with the Earth in its orbit around the sun.
0: Okay. And
1: what what is your project going to involve? Right. So my project involves looking at a fairly nearby galaxy and peering deep into the center of the galaxy to try and um, measure very accurately the gravitational force of the supermassive black hole that lives there in the middle of the galaxy on the stars that are going around it. So black holes, the reason we call them black is because they're actually invisible. You can't see a black hole. It doesn't give off any light. It doesn't shine. Um, And so you can't actually detect it with a telescope directly. But we can see its influence on other objects around it, so stars shine, we can see stars, and we can see that in the centers of galaxies the stars are moving around much more rapidly than they should be if they were the only things that were existing there. And the reason they're moving around very quickly is because all of that material that's compressed down into the supermassive black hole at the center of each galaxy it has a very strong gravitational force and it's mm-hmm. actually whipping those stars around in very fast orbits. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit like studying the wind. You can't see the wind directly, but you see its effects on um, instruments or on trees or on weeds outside. You see them blowing around being influenced by the wind.
0: Mm-hmm. We can't
1: see the black holes directly, but we can see their influence on material around them.
0: What's the name of this uh, galaxy
1: that you're going to be studying? It's not a very fancy name. It's NGC four one five one. So it's a it's got a catalog name. Uh, there are so many objects in space that we don't name them all. Wilma and Fred and Barney. Uh, we would run out of names too run out quickly.
0: Of good names. Yeah. Yeah. So we just end up giving them catalog numbers for the most part. Okay. And what does it mean that you're going to measure the supermassive black hole there? Right. So in
1: this case, we're going to try to very carefully measure its mass. And we measure the mass, how much stuff is squished down into it Mm -hmm. by measuring its gravitational force on the stars around it. Um, And that's important because there are not that many properties that a black hole has that can be determined. So mass is one of them, how much stuff is squished down into the black hole. But also, the black hole's not just sitting there. Everything in space is moving, and in general, everything in space is rotating around And so we expect that all black holes are spinning. Some of them may be spinning slowly. Some of them may be spinning very quickly. There could be a range of spins uh, that black holes have. And so that's one other property that you could potentially use to describe a black hole in addition to its mass, also its spin. And the only other property that a black hole could potentially have is an electric charge. Mm. Um, We know that they don't give off light, so they don't have a brightness. They don't have a temperature They don't have magnetic field strength. Uh, They don't have a chemical composition because when you squish down everything so that it's much smaller than an atom, chemicals don't make any sense because atoms don't exist at that point anymore. Hmm. So all the characteristics we usually try to quantify for different objects so that we can understand how they work physically, most of those are just not even available for characterizing a black hole. But the, the three that we have are the electric charge, the spin, and the mass. The only one we know how to measure reasonably well is the mass. And that's because we think we understand gravity pretty well. So by quantifying its mass, at least we know something about that particular black hole. And then the mass of the black hole sort of sets how much power it has to affect the things around it. How much gravitational force does it have? Um, Also, how much energy can be released from material that falls into the black hole? Mm So that process of material falling in or the black hole feeding that actually releases a lot of energy, and the amount of energy that's released depends on how massive the black hole is. And so that can have an effect on material around the black hole as well. If there's a lot of energy being released from material that's being eaten, that can actually have a force that pushes more material away. Mm-hmm. So it can actually starve itself by blowing away all of its food. Hmm. And that set the, the strength of that uh, potential feedback effect is set by the mass of the black hole.
0: Okay. And and measuring the mass of these these things, what, what do we hope to learn by doing that? Right. So one of the interesting things that we found shortly after discovering
1: that black holes are not just science fiction but are actually science fact, one of the interesting things we discovered is that supermassive black holes, which live in the centers of galaxies... They actually seem to know something about the galaxies that they live in, and the galaxies seem to know something about the black holes. So if you have a small galaxy, you have a small black hole in the center. If you have a big galaxy, you have a big black hole in the center. And there's no reason those two things should go together because black holes are very compact, they're very dense, and they only affect a small region around them directly. Hmm. Galaxies are huge and very extended, well beyond the influence of the black hole in the center. So there's no reason that they should scale in the same way unless somehow they're affecting each other. Mm -hmm. And the way that we think they're affecting each other is that the galaxy is a source of food for the black hole, so it can have material that gets dumped into the center that ends up feeding the black hole and making it grow. And the black hole in the course of feeding can have a lot of energy released from that material which can actually start to blow some of the food source away and actually influence the rest of the galaxy around it by slowing down star formation or blowing all the gas away and shutting down star formation completely. Hmm. And so it's sort of a self-regulation effect. They're, they're in a little bit of a symbiotic relationship where if one is growing, the other will grow, but by having the black hole grow, it's going to slow down the growth of the galaxy. Hmm.
0: So do we have any black holes lurking in our own solar system, and should we worry about them affecting us here on Earth? Right. Definitely not in the solar system. So the closest black hole that we
1: know about is 3,000 light years away from Earth. So very far away, not something we need to worry about. Is that still in our Milky Way galaxy? It is still in the Milky Way galaxy, yeah. Um, So that would be a stellar mass black hole. So it has a mass of about 10 times the mass of the sun compressed down into a very small region. Uh, We know of other stellar mass black holes in our galaxy. So their closest one is about 3,000 light years away. The next closest, I think, is about 10,000 light years away. So they're sprinkled throughout the galaxy, and they exist in places where there used to be a massive star that has already reached the end of its life and died, and the outer layers of that star exploded out and the center fell in on itself and collapsed down into a black hole. So any place that you would find normal stars in the galaxy is a potential place where you could find a small black hole, but we don't know of any that are close by. We have one supermassive black hole in our galaxy in the very center, and that's about 25,000 light years away. Uh, So even though a supermassive black hole sounds like a very strong, very influential object, it's so far away that it's not affecting us here on Earth at all.
0: Okay. Not going to suck us in. It's definitely not going to suck us in, and black holes don't suck. They just use gravity. Okay. (laughs) Can uh, studying black holes help us understand more about the Big Bang or the origins of the universe? Possibly. Um, Probably not
1: directly, but black holes are very extreme objects where the fundamental forces that govern how structure grows and interacts and develops within our universe, everything is sort of taken to the extreme when you get to a black hole. So when you take all of that material and you squeeze it down into basically an infinitely small point source, we can't even describe with our understanding... Of physics, what that material is. Mm -hmm. And it's quite similar, possibly, to what the universe was like at the very beginning, just before it started expanding, and maybe even just slightly after it started expanding outwards in the Big Bang. And so we know that black holes are a place where our physics and our understanding is challenged, because Mm -hmm. the conditions are so extreme. And that's also true of the very beginning of our universe. And it's possible that if we could improve our understanding of physics enough to actually be able to explain what's going on in the center of a black hole, that that would also allow us to explain other things that we can't currently explain.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, black holes certainly have a a cool factor in the popular imagination. So it's interesting to think about what are some of the things that we might learn? Are there any practical applications that the layperson could relate to and, you know, to help understand why it's important to study these these things? Right. So I know everybody's thinking, wormholes, of course, we could have travel between different
1: galaxies. Uh, the best of our understanding is that's probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. But like I said, we can't fully understand what's going on in the center of a black hole. So maybe um, it's at least a fun idea to think about. But when it comes to studying the universe and studying how physical laws work in general, we don't always know what we're expecting to get out of it. A lot of times it's just exploration and trying to have a better handle on how things work in our universe. So Mm -hmm. we know some bits and pieces about how things work, and that allows us to build cars and airplanes and spaceships and things like that. But we also know that our understanding of physics is very incomplete. In some places, it's very obvious. We can't explain the center of a black hole. Mm -hmm. In other places, it may not be obvious. So we thought that Isaac Newton's understanding of gravity was all there was for about 200 years until Einstein came along and said, hey, that's a good approximation for the kinds of situations we encounter here on Earth. But it's not a good approximation for all situations. Um, And so he gave us a, a more complete framework to understand gravity in more situations. And we know that we're still lacking information about how everything really works in the most extreme situations. And black holes are one of those really extreme situations. So just by studying really extreme environments and areas where the physics and our understanding is really challenged, we have the potential to have all kinds of surprising discoveries that we never would have expected that could lead to applications we never would have envisioned before. Sort of like asking somebody from the mid-1800s if they thought we would be able to launch a telescope into space in order to study supermassive black holes. And that would sound like nonsense to them because they couldn't fly yet at all, let alone Mm -hmm. outside of the Earth let alone understand really what a black hole was at that point in time. So in science, as in all things, I think really as humans, we're limited by our imagination. What can we think of? And what that means is that our, our science and our math and our physical intuition, all of that is limited at this point.
0: And there's always the potential for exciting new discoveries. Mm-hmm. So what led you to decide you wanted to become an astrophysicist? So I actually really want to be an astronaut, always have. Uh, I think space is cool,
1: always have. Ever since I think it was third grade is when you first start learning about the solar system Mm -hmm. and we had to learn about the planets. And um, that just seemed like the most interesting thing that I learned in school. I think a lot of it may have had to do with all of the Star Trek and Star Wars I watched as a kid as Uh well with my dad. Um, And there's also this sort of funny coincidence – I came across a picture from my first birthday about 10, 15 years ago that I didn't know about before then. And it's me at the park with my parents on my birthday, which is the 4th of July, mm. pointing up at the lights in the sky.
0: Mm-hmm. So perhaps
1: it was always sort of meant from that point that I would have a career that spent looking up at the sky and studying the lights that we can
0: see in the sky. I like that story. What is the biggest misperception that people might have about your research? Oh, there are several. Um, The first
1: is that I must stay up all night every night. (laughs) Uh, I can't do that because I'm a professor at a university and I have to teach classes and attend meetings and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for space telescopes especially, they they operate like robots. You would send commands up to it and it executes those commands and then sends uh, the information back to Earth. And so for something like a James Webb or a Hubble Space Telescope observing project, I just get an email telling me your data has arrived, please download it from our servers. Uh, and I don't have to do anything uh, to make those observations happen. There's a whole process of setting up the requirements for the observations way ahead of time and then it goes through the official schedulers and then the people who actually control the spacecraft will send the commands up and the spacecraft acts like a robot and operates uh, and executes those commands. So I don't stay up all night most of the time. I do maybe once or twice a year, stay up part of the night and control a telescope that's on the ground here somewhere. Mm -hmm. I may do that in person, or I may do that remotely over the internet. Both of those are options that we have in our field, which is great. But also, we don't sit in the telescope dome with the telescope when we're observing, and we don't put our eyes on the telescope and look (laughs) through them. Uh, Instead, we have digital cameras that are attached to the telescope, and the digital cameras capture the information that we want, and we store those on computers and then work with them later, usually in the daytime. Mm. I guess the other misperception that people have, and this is one I had to explain to my mom a couple times too, is that as a professor, I don't have summers off. Mm-hmm. So I may be teaching classes during the academic year and attending meetings, but as a researcher, the summer is when I have the most free time to really work on my research projects and try and make progress actually working with that data from a telescope, making the measurements that I need, writing papers to explain what it is that we've done and what we've found, putting together talks for conferences or writing grant proposals to help fund that research. So being a professor is only a little bit of what the students see in the classroom. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of other stuff we're doing outside of that. And we wear many hats throughout the day, whether we're working as a researcher or as an educator or as a staff member of the university, or even just as a representative of academia, you know, sort of a science communicator for the public. Mm -hmm. And we have to switch between those multiple times per day sometimes, which can be challenging. Yeah.
0: So our last question is one that we like to ask all of the researchers who we invite in, and, and that's whether you have a favorite book or movie that discusses your work. So I think most of the books and movies that deal with black holes, they go a little too far
1: off the deep end for me. So Interstellar, for example, was an interesting movie until he went into the black hole and then the story took a funny turn. But I really like The Martian. I think The Martian did an excellent job of showing what life actually is like as a scientist, which is that things are hard, things break. You have to be creative and come up with new solutions sometimes with not the supplies or resources that you actually would like to have at your disposal. Mm -hmm. And you just have to keep solving problems as they pop up and not get discouraged. And I think that's probably the best representation of science that I've ever seen in the media where it's not like CSI where they go into the lab and five minutes later they have the magic answer. It's this process of sometimes feeling like you're beating your head against a wall and not making any progress, or you have a big breakthrough and then a huge setback. That's really much more of what science is like. Okay. Big challenge. Yes.
0: Yeah. But worth it? Most of the time, yeah. Okay. Great. Well, thank you for spending some time with us today, Dr. Benz. This has been the Arts and Sciences Matters podcast, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. You can follow us or let us know what you think on Twitter at GSU And you can find more episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Thank you for listening, and we hope you subscribe so you won't miss out on future episodes.